as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing near there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to do. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. As we begin walking with Jesus through the last week of his life in the book of Mark, we begin with an entrance that Jesus, uh, Jesus specifically chose to make a statement with. While this triumphant entry, as it has come to be called, might not seem very radical or explicit, we have to remember that Jesus has not been quite as forthcoming about his identity in Mark's Gospel as he is in some of the familiar passages in John. We associate with proclaiming this. In fact, it has been quite the opposite. As Jesus employed what has come to be called messianic secret throughout Mark, instructing many people that he healed and performed miracles in front of, not to tell anyone about his identity. So when Jesus essentially acts out the prophecy of Zechariah 9, where the humble and the righteous messianic king come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he is proclaiming that something new and radical is about to happen. Of course, the new and radical things, which was the coming and reign of Israel's Messiah, would not come about the way that anyone, including his own disciples, expected. The triumphant entries occurs a week before the Passover, probably on Sunday. That is John chapter 12, verse 1. 
This was a festive occasion, and the holiday excitement gripped the holy city. Many preparations had been made, and a great many foreigners had made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On event in recent days, more than any others, have brought a focus of attention on Jesus. He has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. The scribes and Pharisees not only denounced him, but determined to put both he and Lazarus to death. John chapter 11 verses 46 to 50, and John chapter 12, verse 10. Word has gone out that anyone who knew the whereabout of Jesus should report it to them. John chapter 11, verse 57. Many of those who turned the way to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem did so because of reports of the raisings of Lazarus. John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. In such an atmosphere, electric, with excitement and expectation and anger, the highly symbolic act of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a court, could not be taken lightly. The first few verses of this morning's passage focus on the details of Jesus' plan. He gave two of his disciples precise instructions. They are to go into the village ahead of them where they will find a coat. They are, not, they are to untie it and bring it to him. If someone tries to stop them, Hey, what are you doing this? They are to say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. As they enter the village and they find the court, it plays out as Jesus has said. So some people standing there ask, Where, what are you doing untying this court? And the disciple responded as Jesus had instructed. The people of the village allowed the disciples to take the court. Is this a miracle? Did Jesus use his divine powers to know that this donkey will be available and to ensure that the bystander will let the disciples take the animals? Perhaps, but not necessary. Jesus could have planned this event during his last visit to the area in previous months. Knowing that he would declare himself to be king on Sunday before Passover, Jesus did not leave things to the last minute. He knew that he was going to do and what he was going to do, and he had made arrangements with a friend long ago. When he sent forward his disciples, he sent them with a password that had been prearranged. The Lord needs it. This was not a sudden, reckless decision of Jesus. It was something which he had been preparing for all of his life. Jesus could have carefully orchestrated this event, 
by miracle or by preparation months ahead of time. We can be sure that the event described in the next verses occur exactly as he intended. The next question we ask ourselves is why did Jesus ask them to get a donkey? Jerusalem was less than two miles from Bethany. Most of us could have walked that. He walked all over Israel teaching and preaching. Walking the two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem would have been nothing to him. So it was not a matter of being tired. Jesus also would have been well aware the people walked to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So why did Jesus ask his disciples to get the donkey? The answer is found in the fact that the people of Jesus' day would have vast sections of the scripture memorized. Many people could not read, so they would have memorized the scripture they heard read in the temple. So when Jesus rode the donkey towards Jerusalem, a significant percentage of the people would have remembered what the prophet Zechariah prophesied. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the force of a donkey. A great number of people would have remembered this prophecy, seeing Jesus riding towards Jerusalem on a donkey. They would have understood Jesus to be saying that he is the prophesied Savior King who God would send. Mark, on the other hand, does not emphasize the fact that this act of the Lord Jesus was a deliberate fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Matthew in chapter 21, John in chapter 12, both tell us that this is a precise fulfillment of that portion of, from the book of Zechariah. Mark wrote his gospel for the Gentiles' converts. Gentile readers would not be as impressed with this prophetic fulfillment as those of Jewish descent would be. They explain why Mark does not mention the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. The disciples lead the animals to Jesus. He mounts it and writes down the slope of the Mount of Olives in the Kidron's Valley and then up the hill to Jerusalem. As he writes, the people throw palm branches before him and some spread their clothes on the road. Mark does draw our attention to the response of the crowds of this dramatic entrance of Jesus into the holy city. We would gather from the combined information of the gospel account that there was the converging of two crowds. One was the crowd that came into the 
city of Jerusalem with Jesus from Bethany. John chapter 12, verse 9. The other, the multitudes who streamed out of the city of Jerusalem to meet him as he came. That's John chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Some placed their garments on the back of the clothes for Jesus to sit upon while others placed theirs in the path for the animals to walk upon. Mark chapter 11, verse 8. Branches were cut or torn off the, of the surrounding trees to spread on the path and possibly to be waved in the air. This is an image that has been acted and reacted throughout Jewish history. Every Jew in Jerusalem who knew history and who knew the scriptures understood this. King Solomon was riding a donkey on the way to his coronation. First Kings chapter 1 verse 38. Jehu was proclaimed king accompanied with men placing their clothes under him. That's Second Kings chapter 9 verse 13. And about 170 years before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Simon Maccabees, the leader of Israel at that time, had finally won independence from Syria. As he entered Jerusalem, they sang praises and waved palm branches. First Maccabees chapter 13, verse 51. The welcome given to the Lord Jesus parallels that given to military heroes of ancient times. In addition to these things, Jesus was heralded in terms that could only be called messianic. He was greeted with what was in essence a Hallel Psalm, one of the series that is Psalms 113 to 118 sung at Passover. Mark makes specific reference to Psalms 118 verse 26. Now in verse 9, Hosanna means help or save, I pray. While this is a cry for help on one hand, it is also apparent that it is employed as a term of adoration and praise. In the expression, blessed is, the he, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we find that Jesus is hailed as one who has come as a divine representative at the least. And in the following statement, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, we see that it is the establishment of the kingdom which is foremost in the minds of the multitude. Hosanna in the highest heaven reflects an angelic announcement of the Messiah's birth in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We can conclude that the crowds understood the action of Jesus 
as a symbolic statement of his identity as Israel's Messiah. They hailed him as a coming one, the king of Israel. Luke chapter 19 verse 38. While the crowds were correct to hail Christ as their Messiah, they were wrong in their conception of the mission of his first appearance and of their concept of the nature and the timing of the kingdom. They were correct to hail him as a coming king as Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 promised. But they failed to appreciate the significance of him riding upon the donkey symbolic of a non-military and humble mission. Here, as in John chapter 6, they wish to make Jesus king because of their mistaken hopes of what the kingdom will be like. To be more precise, the error of the crowds was at least threefold. First of all, their acclaim was almost totally based upon and motivated by the miracles which he had performed. Luke chapter 19 verse 37 and John chapter 12 verse 9. It was not his words, his teaching and doctrine, but his works that motivated many to receive Jesus as Messiah. Secondly, they failed to grasp the proper priority for the coming kingdom. Ultimately, the Messiah would establish a physical earthly kingdom, but primarily his kingdom was based upon a spiritual renewal. The cheering crowd thought only of the material dimension of the kingdom to the exclusion to the spiritual. Thirdly, they were completely in error as to know the kingdom, as to how the kingdom was to be established. They thought it would be accomplished by military might and revolution rather than by rejection, suffering, and a humiliating death for the Messiah, who was to die as the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. Why then Jesus carried through this mission? There are several reasons. First, to fulfill prophecy concerning himself. The Gospel accounts stress that this act was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Second, to safely enter the city of Jerusalem. It may not seem necessary, but the word was out to disclose the location of Jesus as soon as he appeared. John chapter 11, verse 57. Had Jesus attempted to enter Jerusalem secretly, he could have been quietly disposed of. The religious leader could not, so, uh, could not so much as lift a finger against him as he entered in this manner. 
So John chapter 12, verse 19. Third, to publicly and symbolically give testimony to his identity as Messiah. Neither the crowds nor the religious leaders missed the implication of his triumphant entry. Fourth, a proclamation of the kind of kingdom which he was to establish. Jesus did not march proudly into the city of Jerusalem as a strutting military figure, nor did he ride on a spiritual stadion. He rode on a donkey, symbolic of his humble peacemaking assignment. This aspect of the triumphant entry was totally overlooked. Only the later events of the week would make this clear. And then the cheering crowd would turn their backs on the Messiah. Fifth, to provoke the opposition and precipitate his own execution on the appointed day. Nothing could have been more of a catalyst to the opposing forces than this symbolic public proclamation. Now something needs to be done and fast. The irony of the consequence of the event in the last week of our Lord's early ministry is striking. The grandiose expectations of the multitude would have inclined them to expect Jesus to master his forces and launch an all-out attack on the military garrison in Jerusalem. Instead, Jesus marched into the temple and launched a surprise attack against the religious establishment. Mark alone informed us that Jesus' attack upon the religious system was not spontaneous, but highly calculated, just as his triumphant entries. In verse 11, we are told that Jesus went immediately to the temple upon his arrival in Jerusalem. There he looked about, and seeing the hour was already late, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Returning the next day, he went into the temple and single-handedly purged it. What was the meaning of his temple cleansings? First, it reveals that God was more angered by the religion of Israel, his people, than the political damnation of Rome. He did not attack the Roman garrison, but the religious establishments of abominations in the temple. By this, he reveals the true purpose of his first coming. It was not to throw off the shackles of Rome, but to restore true religion to the nation Israel. To put it in other terms, it was not to bring about political and social reform, but spiritual renewal and restoration. Second, he was designed to further 
precipitate the final conflict and crisis between himself and the religious system of his day. The scribes and Pharisees were red hot with anger and were ready to attempt any plan that might rid the nation of the menace, the cleansing of the temple. Mark chapter 11, verse 18. Palm Sunday is strange because the disciples and the crowd on that day were both profoundly right and profoundly wrong about Jesus. They were right that the coming of the Messiah is something to welcome with joy. But they were wrong about the kind of Messiah they were expecting Jesus to be. Right before Palm Sunday, Jesus tried to tell his disciples what to really expect. Jesus tried to tell them about God's unusual plan. He tried to tell them what kind of Messiah he would be. He told them that he would not be organizing an uprising. He would not conquer the Romans. He would not be a new King David. To the contrary, Jesus told them that he would be rejected and killed and then rise again after three days. Jesus told them not once, but three times. And three times Mark tells us of the disciples' reaction. In Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. It's like everything Jesus has just told them about rejection and death went into one year and out of the other. Jesus said, I am going to be a suffering Messiah. It didn't connect. The Palm Sunday crowd could not have wrapped their heads around that. The disciple could not either. Nobody thought of that way. And friends, the truth is this. Most likely we won't have understood Jesus either. Now there's something else that Mark showed us which is also surprising. On Palm Sunday, the crowd misunderstands Jesus and yet, strangely, Jesus seemed to play along. There is no better words than tragedy to describe this triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into the holy city. It was not pagan Roman, ultimately, that rejected and put the Savior to death, but the pious religion of Jesus' day. Yes, Rome had a hand in the death of the Savior, but it did not instigate his death. It only apparently went along with it. All too often, we concern ourselves with loud-mouthed atheists who boldly refuse the truth of Christianity. These people are a problem, but the most dangerous of all is the religious deceiver. Religion is the opiate of the people. The kind of religion displayed at the triumphant entry. 
Christianity and religion are diametrically opposed to each other. While true religion, Christianity must express itself in social concerns, that is not its essence. Today, even as 2,000 years ago, religious leaders are deceiving countless religious people into supposing that religion is to focus upon revolution and reform, upon political activism, rather than upon repentance and renewal. There are many false prophets with false messages today. But the sad reality is that people are attracted to them because they proclaim the masses, what masses want to hear. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their teaching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. My friend, may I ask this question with all sincerity? Are you a Christian or are you just religious? A Christian recognizes that God has shown every man, and me in particular, to be a sinner. A Christian trusts not in his own religious activity or good deeds, but in the death, burial, and resurrections of Jesus Christ. He was bruised for our iniquity. He bore the penalty of our sins. His righteousness made us acceptable to God. May God spare us from religion. Be on guard to any religion that receives the acclaim of the masses. The multitudes heralded Jesus as Messiah, but they did not receive him as God's Messiah in the final analysis. My friend, there are many today who have nice words for Jesus. A good man, a great teacher, a wonderful example, a social reformer, but the message do not regard themselves as sinners nor the Lord Jesus as the suffering Savior. Here is what separates the sheep from the goats, the true believers from the synthetic. I'll respond to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. The collect for Palm Sunday. Almighty and everlasting, ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death 
upon the cross, giving us the examples of his great humility, mercifully grants that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection to Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.